The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Markets trying so hard to score a win. The ECB, well, hopping on that big rate hike bandwagon. Oil plunges. Weird, don't you think? And a few thoughts on what is next. All this and much more on episode number 781 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Back from NOLA, New Orleans, you know, and wow. <laughs> I got to tell you, seriously, I, I I guess I didn't train properly for that town. Andrew Horowitz here. I am the host of the Discipline Investor Podcast, as well as the co-host of DH Unplugged. That's on Tuesdays. John C. Dvorak, myself. We get together, and you know what we do? Well, we have a live stream, and we talk about all things market-related, finance, and a little bit different than this podcast. This podcast is a little bit more serious, right? We talk about the things and how they are and how to educate ourselves and how to learn, how to do the things we need to do for our future, our financial security, that financial independence that we're looking for down the road sometime, and a bit more about the intricacies about investing. Well, on that podcast, on that one-hour show each week that we do it, well, we talk about the ideas about the news and what's happening and really behind the scenes looking at what they really mean to us and how to understand them. Sometimes we turn them inside out backwards and spit them back out. And there we have it, the information that we need to understand it better. So check that out, DH Unplugged, on your favorite podcast app, or you can listen live over at dhunplugged.com on Tuesday evenings. Nine o'clock, by the way, nine o'clock Eastern. So... Back to New Orleans for a second. It's, I guess, a 10-year anniversary that I do. Once every 10 years, I spend some time in New Orleans and uh, Nolans, if you want to call it, NOLA. And I love it there. I mean, it's, it's there's great food, there's great drink, the music, the people, the hospitality, top-notch. Can't beat it. The weekend I went was the... FSU-LSU game, and also the Decadent Fest. Decadence? Decadent? Decadence Fest? I'm not sure which one it was, but it was a very uh, interesting parade. <laughs> Let's say it was pretty busy there that weekend and, and, and wild time down there overall. But I'll tell you something, and this was I, I found really interesting, is that the problems that we are having everywhere else, and why should they be exempt? They shouldn't be. But they're a bit of a different culture there. They, they are people that are deep-rooted in the community. These are people that have worked in the same place in the Camellia Grill since 1982. These are not people that just came two months ago. But it seems the same problem that we're having all over is showing up there as well. It's showing up in restaurants because it's not the same quality of food that I recall. 
And I started thinking about this. I'm like, well, am I turning into my grandmother where everything that she ate was awful because her taste buds were failing her? And I, I said, I don't know. Let's think about that because that's worrisome. Turns out, no, because the people that I was with and the people that I talked to all had the same experience. Service was good. Food quality, average. Yes, I had the, the turtle soup and I went to Acme Oyster and I had the grilled oysters, which were very good, by the way. A little dry, to be honest with you, but very good. Uh, I went to uh, Mr. B's. I had a piece of fish, a red fish, blackened. There was like hardly any blackening. Point is, I'm not trying to bitch and moan about about this and complain just to for the sake of it. The fact of the matter is that there is a dedicated, just a I don't know, a lack of a lack of desire to make things great, a general complacency, uh, well, average is okay concept that's going on. It's a big problem. And post-pandemic, the great resignation, the employment issues, the inflation issues, the supply chain, things are really out of whack. And I don't think people really know how to even act anymore. We are, in the past, so used to, at least I can tell you from my perspective, making sure that everything that we do is high quality rather than just getting it done. Making sure that whatever work you do or whatever friendship you have, whatever relationship, it's held to a certain standard as opposed to whatever. That's what I think should probably be the title of what we see out there right now. It's whatever. And nobody really cares to make sure that that last piece of paint that is just not sitting right is scraped off or the plate is finely wiped or you are right in your balancing and your positioning in your portfolio down to a certain level, a certain percentage that is appropriate. You know, we saw a lot of things that are happening, a lot of reactions and people are, are just bitching and moaning and, you know, oh, it shouldn't be that way. It's not fair. It is because, you know, the information that is being generated. The fact that we have a, a world that we just read headlines. We've talked about this a thousand times. Is a world in which you're not going to get the right information. And the parties that push the information know this. They know we don't have the time, the inclination, the desire, the, the patience, or the aptitude. The aptitude! To actually read more. And even if we did, maybe not understand what we read. And here's where that all falls down. For example, last week, right, we saw this announcement by OPEC. And OPEC, OPEC comes out and they said, hey, we're going to be cutting production by 100,000 barrels per day. And everybody's like, oh, scratching their head saying, what? let me get this straight. Oil prices have been elevated. The hope was that you would increase production to reduce down the overall cost because one of the big problems with the inflation calculation input is that we have a substantial problem with the price of, we'll call it fuel, just generally fuel. It could be heating oil, it could be uh, natural gas, it could be gasoline, oil, whatever it is. We have a major problem there and 
you are now going to cut production, thereby what was supposed to happen was to stabilize pricing. But lo and behold, what was the reaction that we saw to the oil production cut? Unbelievable. Dropped off a cliff, seeing that crude oil and the WTI is down about $82 a barrel, $83 a barrel towards the close of the week, right? And maybe that's due to the fact that we see the continuing saga of the U.S. dollar continuing to move higher on the heels of the conversation from Powell and the Fed. And even in, in the face, in the face of the ECB doing a historic rate hike of 75 base points, never before done by the ECB, following along in the footsteps of the U.S. because that's what they do in Canada, et cetera, because nobody has a way of thinking on their own. What they do is just follow along because, well, if it worked over there, let's just do that. It can't get in too much trouble if we just follow along the crowd. No free thinking anymore. Free thought has left the room. Creativity has left the planet. When it comes to finance, it seems to me. But what was the reason that we saw that oil drop so considerably on that news? Well, maybe it wasn't the news at all. Maybe that news item was just a coincidental timing and we're making more out of this than it should be because really in the background, what is happening is economic conditions are tightening and slowing down. And on top of that, we see that the uh, continuation of Chengdu in China, the lockdowns and the Shenzhen lockdowns of upwards of what, 2118, 38 million people. 38 million people are under some kind of either restraint or lockdown in its entirety in China. It's like the eastern seaboard or part of it. And that is going to create a significant drag on economic activity around the world. And therefore, the fact that whether or not China is buying oil from Saudi Arabia, which they are, or directly from Russia, causes me to believe there was a lot more behind what's going on. Because didn't we have a, a, a scare recently that was being promoted and added on to by some of the major brokerages, Goldman, J.P. Morgan, and a few others? They were talking, depending on which analysts you look at, of, of, of oil skyrocketing back to, I don't know, 150, 160, 170 a barrel. I mean, we saw that analysts were preparing for a never-ending move higher. It was like peak oil in the days of 2008. Remember those? Everybody, let's get on board. Oil is going to go up no matter what forever because we're running out. That was 2008. We're running out of oil. Remember the panic that that brought on? Cranked up the prices higher, scared the crap out of everyone. Then it collapsed. And I got to tell you something. I was thinking about that a lot this week. And I've been thinking about that a lot for a while because there's been something just gnawing at me about a particular topic. And I'm really frustrated with the noise out there and what is being pushed upon us, how we are trying to be molded to believe certain things that are true when in fact maybe it's just a giant illusion let's talk about this. Let's talk about this ESG nonsense. Now, wait, before, before you 
come at me with pitchforks and, oh, man, Horowitz, there he goes. Before you get crazy about it, let's let's talk about some of the things that are involved here. Because there are some components of this general category of ESG investing and compliance on the environmental and social and governance that I think is very reasonable. Uh, You can't persuade me that having a good governance policy inside of an organization, whether it's a publicly traded or non-publicly traded, but in specific, when we're talking about investing, we're talking about publicly traded, is a bad idea as long as we know what we have in place on the corporate level for a succession plan, for the continuity of the business over time, the overall um, the, the the overall structure of how they deal with employees and retention and things of that nature. That's all that, that's reasonable. Social, you know, how they're giving back and maybe some of their charitable functionality, uh, possibly some of the things they're doing internally uh, to promote the education of employees, all these things that go into that. Now, the E, the environmental, eh, that is what I'm concerned about. Now, when we take it in its totality, all of the components of ESG, I got to tell you, I'm still a little bit cold on it. Let me, let me take you back. I want to take you back five years or so. I was asked to a conference on ESG investing. I I had no idea what this was about. So I said, okay, you know what? There's a luncheon. I'll go, I'll listen, I'll find out what the story is. They were really pressing me hard to to go. I think it was PIMCO at the time. It was Allianz. No, I take it back. It was Allianz, the, the brokerage division and the investment arm of Allianz asked me to come to this lunch so I went and uh, brought a couple of um, colleagues, and we wanted to listen to what was going on. So the big thing that I noticed initially that was put on by a, ma- a major firm, and at the time they were telling us about, wow, you know, there's this ESG thing, explained it with all these charts and bubbles and things and all this that was going on on the screen as we were eating the steak and hanging out at this restaurant, And they started to talk about that they were the creator of one of the major benchmarks for ESG, that they were turning into an index to utilize against investments, for example, of the S&P 500, stating that one day every one of the investments inside of the S&P 500 are going to have to comply with some component of this ESG. And we think, that's them saying this, that you know what? There's going to be a lot of companies that are going to want to be on board with this and why not track them, benchmark them, and index them with some kind of an index that we are creating, of course, that they are now, by the way, selling to other firms that utilize it to benchmark the companies because this has become or it's going to become all of the rage. So now this one company, or maybe two at the time, were creating these guidelines, the indices, the way to approach and review companies for compliance and inclusion, and then wrapping investments all around them. You got all that? Think about that. It reminds me of the Y2K days, back in 1999, 
at that time, very similar to what they're trying to promote now. Is it some kind of end of a world event, a scenario that is being built and particularly climate change environment, that component of the ESG. And of course, social and governance, particularly governance. You want to make sure the company has uh, the wherewithal, wherewithal to continue on if a CEO passes or for that matter, are they polluting? Are they doing bad things? Whatever it is, right? And during the Y2K times, we had this end of world imminent event with a timeline and a deadline that it was going to be. And we had a solution that was having to be built and the investment community now builds standards around the concept. It figures out a way to wrap investments and then sells it to the public. Or I should say, pawns it off on the public. Listen, let, let's be clear, all of us. I mean, an end of the world scenario is a great way to get people's attention. I mean, right? I mean... Isn't that what religion is all about, right? The whole idea of this death one day, you want to go to heaven or hell. You know, that if you don't do things, we may have Armageddon or we're going to, the, 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 you know, the, the, uh, the last days. We're going to see some kind of a terrible thing. Certain people are built all around the, uh, you know, events and of things that are negative and horrible things happening. And this is why we need to act a certain way. And these end of world kind of scenarios that are built we don't want that to happen because here's what happens. When people start thinking about that, they're like, well, panic. And they get maybe some relief that there's a solution. Then the investment world starts thinking, oh, maybe there's a, let's, let's get some money in there into the companies that can solve it. And the investors are like, hey, well, that's a no brainer. <laughs> you know, what? if there's somebody can solve, you know, this, this, uh, let's say pandemic. Thank you, Pfizer, BioNTech. Thank you. All the companies that are making all the components and pills. Thank you, uh, you know, for Moderna and everybody else, Novavax. I mean, companies that uh, people will say, yeah, well, they're going to solve this end of world, another end of world situation. Let's invest in them. Now, ESG, end of world, component to a degree with the climate change. Now, that's what most are thinking about. And yes, there are many more aspects of it, but the investment community is getting a hold of this with all sorts of back testing and logic and theories, and they make an index out of it, then they sell it or they pump it. But here's what I think we need to remember about all this, and I think I'm spending a lot of time on this because I think it's really a lot of nonsense that we need to get over. Again, just to be clear, I don't want the world to end, just like you don't. Do we have climate change? I'm sure. Do we need some of these other oversights on companies? Mm, to a degree. I mean, if we're in a capitalistic society, those companies that uh, thrive and do the right things will find their way to the top, right? But at the same time, you have uh, the, the others that, uh, you know, don't. Isn't that what capitalism is all about, right? That concept? Okay, that's great. But what you have is that the index companies or the people that are making up these various indices or, or even the investments are the house and they know the cards and they are dealing them. They are making the rules. They're changing them along the way. They know what companies qualify and which companies don't. They are making the changes inside of the index 
and they are about to make things happen that could cause problems to you because you have no control over it because they are the ones making the rules. It's a major scam. This is a major scam. I don't think ESG concept is a scam. It makes a lot of sense. The whole idea that this is a way to invest, it is just, it's a fad. It, it's really just like, you know, buying investments in only female-run companies and companies that have no, um, for example, vice-negative companies, companies that, that don't have anything to do with alcohol or maybe uh, cigarettes or tobacco or guns and things like that. Uh, okay, if that's what you feel better about, if this is making you feel better, that's great. But you know what? That's not an investment thesis. Seriously. This kind of thing we need to know about and understand how it works, what it means. I mean, we can we can hopefully enjoy some of the ride along if appropriate, but let's not get crazy about this whole thing. And we're going to talk a bit about more, more about this ESG with someone from California who's all about electric cars and electric vehicles next week on the show. Guest Ross Gerber is coming on, and we're going to focus on the latest thing that is making me wonder if another scam is being formed here, because I asked him uh, recently when I saw this, I said, hey, Ross, we got to talk about this. Single stock ETFs. I mean, I get the sense that there are places for this in the world, I guess, maybe. There must be, I mean, some demand, or else why would it be created? And at least there's something that we can maybe figure out on how to use these and whether it's good or not, but I don't know. Maybe it has to do with options or shorts or inverses or things of that nature, but I don't know. So Ross Gerber and I, we're going to be discussing it. We're going to be keeping um, uh, that as the focus. And I am going to also talk with him about ESG because I think, I think he'll be in agreement with a lot of things related to environmental. The other things though, I question and I will question him and then push him. So I think that's something we'll get to Ross Gerber next week. We're going to keep, uh, uh, that discussion going with him as we are. But I do think ESG, if we look at it right now, the way that was structured was again, once again, created by the investment house as a thematic way to invest, just like Y2K was. And I think the difference is, I don't know, Y2K was here, then gone. And the companies that were dealing with it had a lot of business and nothing. This is a different animal altogether, but I think there's going to be a wake up and a reality check um, and realize that it's much more important to understand the bottom line. Now, you may say, well, no, it's not about the bottom line. It's about how companies do for the world and the globe and people and society and how they are growing and making me feel and I want others to feel. and all that. That's fine. But let's remember, that's not necessarily an investment theme or investment, um, I, I would say it's not a strategy. It is, it is something that's of interest, I think it's a byproduct. I think it's something we want to know about. But you can't tell me that all the years that Berkshire Hathaway has been like Mr. ESG King. He's had a lot of companies in that, but all he did all sorts of weird things. So we're going to keep that discussion going. This week we're going to keep short, though. I want to mention a couple of things, though, before we go, because we're going to start really ramping it up over the next few weeks into the end of the year. And here we are, because there's plenty of discussion ahead. We are into the coming into the last bit of the year. This year, strange year. Time to start thinking about things that are important and related to your portfolio. 
portfolio rebalancing, um, tax loss harvesting, or at least to see where you are um, in, in the investments and what may be beneficial to do, specifically if you're in mutual funds, et cetera. A lot of sales that came on throughout the year due to the markets as they moved, and that may have triggered sales within the portfolios of highly appreciated property, and therefore capital gains passing on through to you. We also have RMDs if you're uh, age 72. You're going to have to take a required minimum distribution from your IRA. If you have an inherited IRA, you have uh, 10 years to take that out. Understand that you need to do that as well as make sure to make some room for IRAs. Deposit to pension plans. Keep that going as well. And don't wait until the last minute. Yeah, we're early right now, but there's no time like the present. What we want to do is make sure that you are set from a tax standpoint uh, across the board and that you're rebalanced right, and that you are making sure you're tweaked and appropriately set for what's to come, especially if we're in a situation where we are continuing to be in a rate-hiking regime, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. And what does that mean to certain investments? You know, on Deja Plugged, we're oftentimes, um, well, we have a chat room in there, and, and there's a few people that talk about their investments that, you know, they are headstrong, bulled up. They are going to stay in the particular sector of gold and they're not selling because all these companies have great fundamentals and everything is great. And it's amazing how they're being sold day after day, week after week as the dollar goes up. Now, the problem is that they fell in love with a stock that doesn't love them. And if you've ever been in a relationship where you are spending all your time trying to convince someone to love you and they're married to somebody else, doesn't work so well. But yet they try. And in the end, you end up with just disappointment. And you end up missing out on so many other opportunities. That's the biggest issue. Opportunity cost, what you're missing out on, is major if you're focused in on just one sector and you believe, for whatever reason that by holding on to it, you're going to change the world perception of the stocks that may be out of favor because you're right, you're going to be right, one day you're going to be right, even though you're wrong the most of the time. Point is, don't wait until the end of the year. Act now. Let's rebalance. Let's get in the right sectors. Let's look at what's going on out there. Let's figure out what is really you know waste and what is really great in our portfolios. So make sure to do that on a regular basis, and I think you'll be in good shape. It's the rebalancing process. That's, uh, it's very easy to see once you're watching. It doesn't mean it's going to work 100% of the time, but at least keep yourself balanced properly to whatever target you have inside of your portfolio. And you know me, I'm always suggesting a diversified approach to that process. And sometimes it's magical what you'll find in that flower garden. And if you haven't heard about my flower garden, you know what? You could get my book on Audible over at, uh, well, over at Audible, The Disciplined Investor, Essential Strategies for Success. It's available there. And you can listen in on that. There's some things that have changed over the years, but it's a it's a bit of an evergreen book that gives you insights into what we're talking about. We talk about a lot of things here, but a lot more details in the audio book that's available. Um, and you'll listen to the differences in my voice tone over the years and how uh, microphones have really done an amazing job of making me sound so much better. <laughs> 
Anyway, I want to uh, end it right there. I want to thank you for joining me this week. We're going to get into it a lot longer next week with, uh, with Ross Gerber. Have a great week. Have a successful week. Go visit thedisciplinedinvestor.com and make sure that you are um, understanding all that we have to offer and maybe even think about becoming a client. And we'll help you rebalance and get you straight on the way to where you want to be for your future financial security. Thanks so much for joining me this week and every week. I'll see you again soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training.